All right, I'm going to ask you tonight to please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, to uh, chapter 20, book of Revelation, chapter 20. Thank you for coming this evening, and it's good to see some of my dearest friends uh, here tonight, uh, several of them that I've known for many years, and I appreciate uh, them coming tonight. Very grateful that they would be here. We're going to read uh, just uh, two verses tonight. We're going to begin in chapter Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to read verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then we're going to go to chapter 21. And we're going to read verse 8, chapter 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, I pray this evening that you will help us now to focus on, uh, first of all, the Word of God, and then I pray that you'll help us to be very careful to listen to the Spirit of God. I pray you'll speak to me and guide me and help me to say exactly what should be said. I pray you'll help every one of us to listen to the Spirit tonight and hear what the Spirit has to say to each one of us. In Christ's name, amen. I want to ask you to come with me tonight in your mind. We're going to leave this auditorium and we're going to go on a trip together. We have gone on this trip together once before from this auditorium about six years ago. But there are several people here tonight that were not here then. And so they did not have the opportunity to go with us on that trip. And so I'm going to ask you, if you were here before, to be very patient with us as we retra retrace our steps tonight for the sake of those that were not able to be with us on the last time we took this trip. We're actually going to go for a walk tonight. I don't know about you, but I enjoy going for walks. In fact, I do so every day of my life. Often it has to be on a treadmill, like last night I walked for two miles after I left the service last night and got back to my room. I got on a treadmill and walked two miles. But what I enjoy doing is going for a walk somewhere outside. And my favorite place to go for a walk is by a lake. I like rivers. They're nice, but I like lakes. I like bayous. I grew up in Louisiana. They're nice, but I, but I like lakes most of all. And tonight we're going to go for a walk, and we're going to go for a walk by a lake. In fact, if you will listen carefully as we begin to uh, proceed towards the lake, as we get a little closer to the lake, you'll begin to actually hear the lake. It's a large lake. There's huge waves in this lake that roll into the shore and crash against the bank. I'm sure you've been to the ocean before and 
sometimes as you approach the ocean, maybe there maybe there's a sand dune or something between you and the water, and you can't even see the water yet, but you can already hear the roar of the waves as they came cra- they come crashing in. And if you'll listen carefully in your mind, I believe you'll begin to hear the roar of this lake as the waves crash against the shore. As we get a little closer to the lake, you'll not only be able to hear the lake, but you'll begin to be able to feel the mist that's coming up from the lake. I remember the first time I ever went to uh, Niagara Falls. It was in the summertime, and I remember the one thing that amazed me the most about Niagara Falls was not how big it is, even though it's huge, and not how loud it is, even though it is extremely loud. The thing that amazed me the most was the mist that was coming up from the falls. I happened to be on a bus the, one, the first time I ever went there, and we were still some distance away. I don't remember exactly how far. I want to say I think it was nearly a mile, or at least a half mile, And we crossed a bridge, I remember that, and the bus driver said, if you'll look out the window to your left, you'll see the mist that's coming up from the falls. I'm not good at judging heights or anything of that nature, but it seemed to me that that mist was going several hundred yards up into the air, maybe a quarter of a mile high. It was just unbelievable how big this mist was. It was coming up from the fall. I remember getting out of the bus way down at the other end of the parking lot. You know how it is on a hot summer day when a cool mist hits you in the face or maybe on your hands or arms, and you know how cool and refreshing it is? I live near Lake Michigan, and there is a uh, boulevard downtown Chicago called Lakeshore Drive. Lakeshore Drive runs along the shore of Lake Michigan. And sometimes on a windy day, there's no tide on Lake Michigan, but sometimes on a windy day, the big waves will be crashing in against the shore. And Lakeshore Drive is separated from the, from the lake by a, a park that's pretty wide in itself. But then Lakeshore Drive is 12 lanes wide, six lanes going north, six lanes going south. And I remember driving on that boulevard more times than one on a clear day, but it was windy, and I had to turn my windshield wipers on because so much mist was coming up from those waves crashing in against the big rocks there on the lakeshore drive. Well, the, the mist that was coming up from Niagara Falls was even greater than that, and I remember being way down at the other end of the parking lot, and I got out of the bus, and that mist hit me in the face and on the arms, and you know how cool and refreshing that can be? Well, as we get a little closer to the lake, you'll begin to feel this mist as it hits your back of your hands or maybe your arms or maybe your face, but it's not a cool refreshing mist like you might think it would be. It's a warm, clammy, almost hot. In fact, it kind of tingles a little bit, sort of stings as it hits my skin. If you'll continue to follow me so we get a little closer to the lake, You'll not only hear the roar of the lake, 
you'll not only feel the hot, sticky, clammy mist as it clings to your skin, but you'll begin to smell the lake. Now, to me, that's one of my favorite parts of a lake. I grew up as I've said many times in the last two days, I don't know why I've said it so many times, but I have, but I grew up in Louisiana, and, and we had lots of lakes in Louisiana, and my dad and I spent many, many, many mornings out on some lake early in the morning about daylight. And I can still remember the smell of the lake. It's so refreshing. But as we get a little closer to this lake, you'll begin to smell the lake, but it's not very refreshing. In fact, I don't know if I've ever smelled anything as rancid as the smell of the... In fact, well, yes, there was one time. When I was a teenager, still in high school, I was serving as a youth pastor at a church near my home. When I had a boy in my youth group by the name of Richard, I was only about 16 or 17 at the time, but Richard was 18. But he was a member of my youth group, and he lived about a block and a half from our church. And somehow, Richard got the idea, somebody told him, that he could go in his house, and he could turn on the gas in the heaters. In Louisiana, we don't have furnaces in our house. We, back when I was a boy, we just had a heater in each room, a little stove-like thing that sat on the floor, there was a hole through the floor with a gas pipe coming up and there was gas coming into that little stove-like device that had bricks in it. And if you were in this room, you would turn the gas on and light the heater and it would heat up that one room. And when you left that room, you'd turn the heater off. You'd go to the next room and you'd light the heater over there if you were going to be in that room for a while. It never got real cold in Louisiana and so we never had to worry about heating the whole house very often and Somehow Richard got the idea from somebody that he could go in the house, he could close all the doors and windows, which he did, and locked every one of them, and he turned on the gas in every one of those heaters in each room of the house, but he did not light any of them. And he thought if he could fill the house up with this gas and he inhaled it long enough that he could get high, like being on drugs. But what Richard forgot was that in the kitchen there was a pilot light in the oven. There was a neighbor in the yard working and he heard an explosion and when he did, he dropped what he was doing and he ran over to the house where Richard was and he looked through the plate glass window in the living room and he said for a few seconds there was solid fire from the floor to the ceiling, from wall to wall, but nothing was on fire except the gas. But all of a sudden, you know, usually when a house catches on fire, there might be a curtain that catches on fire, or maybe some wallpaper, and then maybe part of the ceiling, and then maybe uh, part of, another part of the wall, or maybe later some of the furniture begins to burn. But he said in this particular case, everything in the room started burning at the exact same moment. The, wind, the, the window curtains the window shades, the lamp shades, the furniture, the rugs, Richard's clothes. He was sitting on the couch in the living room. He was so startled when this happened, he was just sitting there for a few seconds. My pastor lived about a half block from Richard. 
between him and the church, my pastor also heard the explosion. He ran out of his house and saw people gathering down there in front of Richard's house, and so he took off running down the street to get there to see if there was something he could do to help. When he got there, the people explained to him quickly what was happening. They were trying to get in the house. Nobody could. My pastor grabbed a blanket, got it wet with a water hose, wrapped it around himself, and was just about to try to jump through the plate glass window to see if he could get Richard out. But just before he jumped in, Richard jumped out. When he did, he hit the ground in front of him. And uh, I'm going to say something here that I don't want any of you children to snicker because I'm not trying to be funny by any means whatsoever. But when Richard hit the ground, all of his clothes had burned off his body. All of his hair had burned off. And even his skin was on fire. They said there were little flames where his skin and flesh were on fire and burning like, like, a, like a piece of wood. Some of the neighbors reached down and tried to pinch out some of those fires that were burning on his skin. And when they did, big chunks of skin and some flesh pulled off into their fingers. It was a hot summer night in Louisiana. I remember nights as a boy that the low temperature all night would be 87 degrees. It was one of those kind of hot, muggy Louisiana nights. They rushed Richard to the emergency room at the county hospital. Back then, the county hospital was where people went if they couldn't afford to go to the other hospitals. And there was no air conditioning in the county hospital. They put Richard in the burn unit up on the third floor. They happened to put him in the last room at the end of the hallway on the left. And they left the window open about this far to let a little draft come through because there's no air conditioning. I remember the next day about 3 o'clock I went to the hospital to visit Richard. He had been lying there in that hot, humid Louisiana atmosphere for nearly 20 hours now. When the elevator door opened on the third floor, it created a draft into and down the elevator shaft. You know how sometimes when the elevator door opens, you can hear the wind rush in and rush down the elevator shaft? Well, that happened. And when that wind rushed into my face, it had been drawn through the window in Richard's room and down the hallway. And that smell that hit me in the face of that cooked burned, and now rotting human flesh was the, probably the worst thing I've ever smelled in my entire life. That's the smell I'm beginning to smell as we get a little closer to this lake. I'm going to ask you to step up here to the edge kind of close because there's something out there in the lake that I want you to see. But you'll have to step up pretty close to the edge because out there in the lake, it is dark. It is the darkest darkness you've ever seen. I remember when I was a boy, my family and I went on one vacation my entire life. We drove from Louisiana to California to visit some relatives. And on the way there, we stopped at a place called Carlsbad Cavern in New Mexico. I'm sure some of you have been there. I remember going in the cavern... 
I was just a young boy, so I don't remember it very real distinctly, but, but I remember the opening of the cave seemed to be about as big as this room, like, like the side of this room here. And I remember walking in the cave, and there was a bright, sunshiny day in New Mexico, and I remember making my way into the cave, and we started down a trail, and we walked down and down and down and down and around the corner and around the corner and around the corner, and finally we got to one place, and the guide said, the park ranger said, I want everybody to find a big boulder somewhere and sit down on it. He said, because in a moment I'm going to turn off the lights. And it was the first time it dawned on me that there were lights. They had lights strung along the ceiling of the cave. First time it dawned on me that there was no natural light. So he said, now, when I turn this light off, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your hand about a half inch in front of your nose. And he said, I want you to see how many of your fingers you can count. He said, because, and he used the phrase, you're about to see the darkest darkness you've ever seen in your entire life. And he turned that light off, and I remember I could not see one of my fingers in front of my face. That's how dark or darker it is out there in that lake. But I want you to see something here right along the edge, and I'll be careful as you step up here to the edge because we're standing now on the giant boulders that rim the edge of the lake. And if, you're, if you'll notice the waves that are rolling in from the lake across the beach, they are so hot that when they splash up against the side of the boulder, the wave itself is so hot, when it splashes up against the side of the boulder we're standing on, part of that boulder melts and oozes back across the sand into the lake and the molten rock is so hot it crystallizes the sand as it oozes across and back into the lake and it reheats the lake even hotter than it was to start with. So be very careful as you stand here along the edge. But there's something out there in the edge of the lake I want you to see. If you'll look right over here, you'll see some of those little rings on the surface of the lake. You know what I'm talking about, like when you throw a rock in the water and it makes those little rings like that. Or you throw a stick in the water and it... Well, right over there, there's some of those rings in the, in the water. I remember when I was a boy, my dad and I would fish on those lakes I was talking about often early in the morning. And most of the time, early in the morning, the wind was real calm. The top of the lake was just as smooth as a piece of glass. And the lakes we fished in all had cypress trees in them. And so many times we would be out in the lake fishing, but we would be near some cypress trees, and a bug would fall off one of those limbs of one of those cypress trees, and he'd hit the top of the water. And when he did, if he would just lay there still, he'd be okay. <laughs> but they couldn't lay still very long. After a while, that bug would start wiggling. And sure enough, when he started wiggling, there was some fish down there waiting on him. And every time, some big fish would come flying up there and grab that bug off the top of the water, and the fish's head would break the surface of the water. And it'd make some of those rings like I was talking about. Or maybe sometimes he would come up and sort of suck the bug under, but when he did, he would flip over to go back down, and when he did, his tail would break the surface of the water, and it'd make some of those rings. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm standing here wondering, what kind of fish could possibly live in that lake that is so hot that it's melting the boulders we're standing on? 
But if you'll look carefully in the, in the edge of the lake there where you can just barely see along the edge there, you'll notice that's not a fish. That's a person's foot as he tumbles in the surf and washes back into the lake that breaks the surface of the water and makes those rings. If you'll notice over there, there's a man's hand that broke the surface of the lake. And his hand, it looks like he's reaching up, trying to grab hold of something. Right there below us, I see a man's face as it comes up out of the surface of that lake. In agony, he's screaming as he reaches with his hands and tries to wipe that liquid fire off of his face. And when he does, it burns the palms of his hands. What is that? Right there. Right there at the bottom of the boulder. Is that a, is that a piece of a broken ship that hit the rocks? Is that a, is that a, a piece of driftwood, a, a log? No, look. It's moving. That's a person. He's on his hands and knees. He's crawling towards us. He's trying to get to the bottom of the boulder. He reaches the bottom of the boulder and it looks like he's trying to sort of climb up the bottom of the boulder. And all of a sudden, another wave comes rolling in and it snatches him off the side of the boulder like a wave would pick up a little stick on the beach. And it washes him back into the lake. And when it does, he disappears underneath the surface of that liquid fire and he's gone forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and I wonder what kind of person what kind of person is going to be in that lake? Well, a moment ago, we read that there's going to be murderers there. And we read that there's going to be idol worshipers there. And we read that there's going to be liars there. And there's going to be harlots there. And there's going to be bank robbers there. And there's going to be dope pushers there. And there's going to be bartenders there. And there's going to be little boys and girls who live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. There's going to be little boys and girls who live in Rural Hall, North Carolina. There's going to be little boys and girls who live on your street. There could possibly be a boy or girl who's here in this room tonight and you're old enough that you understand what it means to go to heaven. And you're old enough that you understand what it means to go to hell. And you're old enough and you understand that there's a God in heaven who loves you and His Son died for you and His Son paid for your sins and God does not want you to go to that lake. And you have no reason to be fearful of it because that's not where God wants you to be. But, and you understand all of that, but you've been a little embarrassed. <laughs> so you've never yet accepted Christ as your Savior. You've never yet said to your mom or dad, would you show me how to be saved? 
You've never yet said to your Sunday school teacher when she asked, is there anybody in the room that needs to be saved? You've never raised your hand. You've never yet said to the pastor when he asked during the invitation, uh, uh, you, you know, is there anybody here that needs to be saved today? You've thought to yourself, well, you know, I'm only 8 years of age. I'm only 12 years of age. I'm only 15 years old. And, 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 and uh, it'd be kind of embarrassing. I, I don't, I don't want to go down there to the front, and I don't want them to call my name, and, and I don't know for sure if I know exactly how to do all this. And, 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 I just, you, know, and, you, and you said to yourself, I, I'll wait till later. There's not only going to be some little boys and girls in that lake. There's going to be some mothers in that lake. I remember the night that I got saved. I was 15 years of age. It was on a Monday night, just like this. I had been invited to a special meeting, just like this. That particular night, there was a teenage choir singing, and the teenage, teenagers in the choir gave their testimony. And when they gave their testimony, each one of them talked about being saved and know they were going to heaven. I was sitting in a metal folding chair in the very back of the auditorium against the back wall. And while they gave their testimonies, I sat back there and thought to myself, those kids have something I don't have. Man, I'd like to have what they have. Boy, I'd like to get saved and go to heaven. And so when they finished giving their testimonies and sang a couple more songs, then a preacher got up and preached. And he preached about the fact that there was a hell. And he preached about the fact that there was a heaven. And I had been to a Baptist church before when I was young. I hadn't been to one in the last five years, but, but prior to that I had been to one before and I knew what they were going to do. I knew when he got through preaching they'd give an invitation and you could go down front and get saved. And I said to myself, as soon as he gets through preaching, I'm going to go down front and get saved. But when he got through preaching, they didn't give an invitation. And I was shocked. The choir started singing again. They were going to finish their concert. And I said to myself, man, I'm disappointed. I want to go down front and get saved. And when I said that, the Holy Spirit said to me, you don't have to wait till you go down front to get saved. You can get saved right now where you're sitting. And when he said that, I did one thing. I believed it. When I believed it, I knew I was saved. That night when I left the service... Mr. Reed, my next-door neighbor who had taken me to church, took me home, and he pulled up in front of our house, and he said to me, Ray, do you want me to go inside and explain to your parents what happened tonight? And I said, no, Mr. Reed, I appreciate it, but I think I can tell them myself. And I got out of the car, and I meant to walk across the front yard and go to the front door, but the first thing I knew, I was running across the front yard. I meant to open the door and step in the house, but the first thing I knew, I had slammed the door back against the wall, and my mother was sitting on the couch across the room, and in one big leap, I, I leaped across the living room floor. I landed on my knees in front of my mother. I put my face in her lap. I wrapped my arms around her waist, and I began to cry uncontrollably. And my mom started patting me on the back of the head. And she said, son, what's the matter? Son, what's wrong? Son, what happened? And, and I finally looked up and I said, mom, I got saved tonight. Have you ever been saved? And she said, well, I think I have. But about two years later, I was sitting in my bedroom on a Sunday afternoon. I was reading my Bible. And my mom walked in the room and she closed the door. <laughs> and you know how you feel when mom closes the door. <laughs> I thought, oh boy, what have I done now? Well, in my case, which one did she find out about? And I turned around and she was crying and I thought, man, I'm really in trouble now. You know how it is when mom cries. And mom said, son, I've been out collecting for the March of Dimes this afternoon and about halfway through my route, 
I said to God, if you'll let me get home alive, I promise you I'll go straight to Ray's bedroom. I know he'll be there. He reads his Bible every Sunday afternoon. And I'll ask Ray to show me how I can go to heaven. And I got on my knees beside my bed, beside my mom, and I opened the Bible she had bought me for Christmas, and I took her down the Romans road, and with my tears dropping on this page and her tears dropping on that page of the Bible, my mom accepted Christ as her Savior. She came to church that night and got baptized. She resigned her position as a public school teacher and became a Christian school teacher and later the administrator of the Christian school. There's going to be mothers in that lake. There's going to be fathers in that lake. The night I got home and told my mom I'd been saved, my dad had worked late that night, so he wasn't there, and so I went to bed before he got home from work. And The next morning I woke up and I could hear my dad in the living room getting ready to go back to work, and so I jumped up real fast and put on my blue jeans, no shirt, no shoes, just ran in the living room, and I sat down on the couch beside my dad. And as I mentioned yesterday, my dad was a paratrooper in World War II. He's a real manly kind of a guy, a real man's kind of a man. You know, my dad was kind of a quiet fellow. He didn't say a whole lot. When my dad thought something was hilariously funny, he said, huh. And that's about all you ever got out of my dad. And here I was, a scrawny little 15-year-old kid sitting beside my, you know, 82nd Airborne dad. And I sat down beside him, and I, he was lacing up his brogan boots, getting ready to go to work. And I looked up at him, and I said, Dad, last night I... Uh, uh, la last night I, uh, 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 last night, Dad, I, uh, 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 la uh, Dad, I got saved last night. You ever been saved? He said, well, of course I have. And he got up and walked out and went to work. My freshman year at Howells Anderson College, I was asked to go speak at a youth meeting a couple hours away from our college. And so I drove down there one evening and a buddy of mine went with me and he took one of those little tape recorders. You remember those little tape recorders that was about the size of a loaf of bread? <laughs> you remember those that had eight batteries in it? You remember, you're, old, you're willing to admit you're old enough to remember those? And, and, and he had one of those and he took it with him and he sat on the second row that night and I preached my sermon and he taped my sermon. I didn't know he was doing it, but when the service was over, he gave me the tape. Well, now that I had a tape ministry, I wanted everybody on my mailing list to have a copy of my tape, and so I mailed the tape to my mom. She was the only one on my mailing list. My dad came home from work, and mom was playing that tape, and he sat down and listened to the end of it, and when it finished, he said, turn that over. I want to hear the whole thing. So she turned it over, played it again, and dad listened to it. That night when mom and dad started the bed, she said she could feel the bed shaking. She knew my dad was crying. I've only, I lived in the same house with my dad for 18 years. I only saw him cry two times in my entire life uh, up to that time. The day that his dad died and the day that my dad and my older brother got in a fist fight in our living room. At supper that night, my mother said, aren't you two going to apologize to each other? And my dad said to my brother, son, I'm sorry that happened. And my brother said, blankety blank, if I'm going to apologize. My, I saw my dad cry that day. Only two times I ever saw him cry in 18 years. But that night he was crying so hard the bed was shaking. And mom said, Theo, what's wrong? And he said, uh, I don't know what's wrong. And she said, I know what's wrong. You need to get saved, don't you? He said, that's all I've thought about since I heard that tape this afternoon. My mom got up and turned the light on and she opened her Bible to the same Romans road I had taken her down. And my mom took my dad down that Romans road and he got saved that night. I preached his ordination service the night he became a deacon at our church, at his church uh, some years later. 
But there's going to be fathers in that lake. There's going to be brothers in that lake. I said I got saved on a Monday night. Tuesday morning I asked my dad if he was saved. I went to school that day Tuesday. I came home Tuesday afternoon. When I got home, my older brother Larry was underneath his 1967 uh, 396 Chevy Supersport. He had a, a four-barrel carburetor in it and a, and a four-speed Hurst shifter on the floor. And he was underneath the car with it jacked up on blocks, changing the transmission. He did that about once a week. <laughs> and he said, hey, Ray, get under here and help me hold this transmission in place so I can put the bolts back in. And so I slid under there. Now, remember, I hadn't been saved 24 hours yet. I never heard the word soul winning. I never heard the word witness. I didn't know anything about the Romans road. So I slid under the car. I'm laying there holding the transmission in place. He's putting the bolts in. I leaned my head over and I said, Larry, if this car fell on us right now and killed us, would you go to heaven? He said, yeah, I'd go to heaven. I said, you wouldn't go to heaven. You have to be saved to go to heaven. He said, I am saved. I said, you're not saved. You drink beer. Now, my theology was off a little, but not very far. <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. I had never witnessed anybody. I didn't know there was any such thing as witnessing to somebody. About a year later, I was preaching my first revival meeting. And um, I was preaching the last night of the revival meeting. And the first two nights of the revival meeting, I preached and nobody got saved. But the last night, I stood to preach and I couldn't quit crying. I just stood up to preach and I started crying. I read my text, I started crying again. I read point one, I started crying again. <laughs> I read point two, I started crying again. There was another point, but I gave up and went and sat down. I said to the pastor, I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong, I can't preach. He got up and said, folks, you just saw, he didn't say heard, he said, you just saw the... Uh, the best sermon ever preached in this pulpit. And he gave the invitation. There were 62 people there that night. I didn't see it. I was over here on my knees with my head in my hands like this, crying because I was so embarrassed. But they said 60 people walked the aisle that night. Robbie Heiner, some of you might remember that name. He used to sing on the Jerry Falwell program. Robbie Heiner and I used to do meetings together when we were teenagers. He would play the piano and sing, and I'd preach. And Robbie Heiner was playing the piano that night, and my brother liked Robbie Heiner. He was one of the 60 that walked the aisle, and halfway through a verse, all of a sudden the piano just stopped playing in the middle of the verse. I found out later what happened was my brother went over. You remember Robbie Heiner is a little short, skinny guy? And my brother picked him up off the piano bench and said, I want to get saved. Robbie Heiner said, okay, okay, and he won him to the Lord over there behind the piano bench. I got out from under that car that afternoon, and I went into the backyard. I hadn't been saved 20 hours yet, and I found my other brother. I said, Kevin, have you ever been saved? And he looked at me with a puzzled look, and he said, well, Ray, you were there the night I got baptized. And I knew just getting baptized wasn't the same as what had happened to me the night before. But I didn't know how to explain it. But about a year and a half later, I was in church on a Sunday night. I was sitting right over here on the second row. And during the invitation, I heard footsteps coming down the aisle. And you know how certain footsteps, you just know who it is. You don't even have to see them. You just hear the footsteps. You know who they are. My brother rides horses a lot. He's real bow-legged. When he puts his boots in the mudroom, they don't sit like this. They sit like this. 
and I recognized his footsteps. I didn't even know he was in church that night. But he had come to church with his fiancée because they were getting married the following Friday night and they were going to do God a favor and come to church one time so he had blessed their marriage. But that night during the invitation, he walked the aisle. The first thing I knew, I was laying on the floor crying and I looked out from under the first pew and I could see the heels of my brother's cowboy boots at the altar with my pastor's arm around his shoulders. And when he got off his knees, he knew he was going to heaven. There's going to be sisters in that lake. There's going to be uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents and neighbors and friends and husbands and wives and possibly someone who's sitting here in this room tonight. But there is no reason for you to be the least bit fretful about hell. Because if you go to hell, you'll be an intruder. You don't belong there. God did not make hell because He was mad at me and you. God made hell for the devil and his angels. And if you or I go there, we go uninvited. We have not been invited to hell. God has provided a way for you to go to heaven. And it's very simple. He let His Son, Jesus Christ, die on the cross three days later after He had been buried and sealed in a tomb. He rose from the dead. Before they opened the seal on the tomb, He rose from the dead. And now He is alive and He's in heaven and He's our advocate. He's our lawyer. He's telling the Father, Father, I've already paid for His sin. That man that is sitting there in that church service tonight, the one there at Woodland Baptist Church, Father, you see him right over there. The one that's sitting there in Rule Hall uh, or Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the, the, that man or that woman or that child that's sitting there, I paid his penalty. He doesn't owe a penalty. Uh, a father, uh, uh, he doesn't have to go to hell. He can come to heaven. He just has to do one thing. He has to trust me, Jesus, instead of trying to be good enough to get to heaven. Can I have every head bowed and every eye closed?